All right, welcome and good evening, everyone. And welcome back. My name is Tanisha Taylor and I use she, her, hers pronouns. And myself, along with Gavin Alexander, we are the co-chairs of the Affinity Bar Relations Subcommittee of the BBA's Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Section Steering Committee. And on behalf of the BBA and all the co-sponsors of this event, I would like to welcome you warmly, welcome you warmly back to the Amplifying Unheard Voices series. Our co-sponsors for the evening are the Massachusetts Legal Assistance um, Corporation, the Massachusetts Access to Justice Commission, the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court Standing Committee on Lawyer Wellbeing, and the Massachusetts LGBTQ Bar Association. I also want to offer a special thank you to the Boston Bar Foundation Beacon Fund for Diversity and Inclusion for supporting this program. This is part four of our Amplifying Unheard Voices series, and tonight we will amplify the voices of folks that identify as both BIPOC, and BIPOC stands for Black, Indigenous, and People of Color, and the transgender, non-binary, or gender non-conforming community. And we're really going to be thinking about those living at the intersection of these identities, because as we should know, um, those living at the intersection of these identities face countless issues affecting each of their identities and the intersection thereof. We were sadly reminded of this truth on May 2nd when Jahira De Alto, a 42-year-old transgender Latinx woman, activist, advocate, and adoptive mother was stabbed to that death right here in our backyard in Boston. So let's all take a moment of silence for Jahira, Tony McDade, Tiara Banks, and many, many others whose lives have been lost due to the intersection of racism, homophobia, and transphobia. Take a moment of silence. Thank you. Tonight with leadership from our esteemed panelists who you'll hear from in a moment, we will amplify and uplift the voices of folks from this community. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce our moderator for the evening, Ryan Rosdell, and um, he uses he, him pronouns. And Ryan is a recent graduate of Northeastern University School of Law and presently works as associate at Golston and Stores. He focuses his practice on mergers and acquisitions, corporate governance, corporate finance, corporate financing, bankruptcy, capital markets, and compliance, all of the above, and I'm sure many other things as well. He is on the board of directors for the National Trans Bar Association and serves as treasurer for the Jim Collins Foundation. So without further ado, I'm gonna turn it over to Ryan. And again, we are so happy that you were able to join us here tonight, and I can't wait to learn and to um, hear more from our panelists tonight. So Ryan, it's on, it's on to you. Thanks, Tanisha, and thank you to the BBA and all of our sponsors for this evening, and of course, to our panelists who agreed to join us uh, this evening for this discussion. And forgive me for looking up. I'm going to be looking at some notes here that are above me. Uh, but I just wanted to first uh, speak about how we were dedicating this panel to Jahaira. Um, for those who were unaware, originally this panel was going to take place in early May. And unfortunately, due to the murder of Jahaira in early May, we rescheduled this panel for the end of June. And, you know, we just wanted to, I, I appreciate the moment of silence and take a moment to grieve and acknowledge and, and celebrate her life. 
Unfortunately, her story is all too common for a trans woman of color. In 2020, uh, 45 transgender people were killed. And so far this year, we've already lost 29 lives to violence. And so I just wanted to, to make space for that. Before we begin, I wanna introduce our panelists. And uh, first I wanna start with Alexander Chen. Alexander is the founding director of the Harvard Law School LGBTQ plus advocacy clinic. Alex's work focuses on expanding the rights of LGBTQ plus people through impact litigation, policy advocacy, and direct representation at both the national and local levels. He also teaches gender identity, sexual orientation, and the law at Harvard Law School. Trey Andre Valentine, uh, and I'm sorry, Alex uses he, him pronouns. Trey Andre Valentine, he, they pronouns. Trey Andre is a queer, transgender, indigenous, Carib, Indian, and Black immigrant with South Asian ancestry from the Republic of Trinidad and Tobago. After graduating from Emmanuel College in Boston with a BA in psychology, Triandre focused on anti-violence work in the LGBT plus communities. Triandre is the executive director of the transgender, sorry, the Massachusetts Transgender Political Coalition. JP Delgado Galdemez, she, he, and they pronouns is one of the Network Law Reds Community Awareness Associates. They've been with TNLR for four years, doing trainings about LGBTQ communities, partner abuse, domestic violence, and interrupting oppression. JP was born and raised in El Salvador, Central America. They're also a drag performer, video producer, and event planner. And last but certainly not least, Jennifer Love Williams, she and her pronouns. Jennifer is a formerly incarcerated Black trans woman, an entertainer, and an activist. She's the foundress of the Gen Love Project and serves as co-chair of the formerly incarcerated subgroup of the National LGBT and HIV Criminal Justice Working Group. She also does work with the National Council for Incarcerated and Formerly Incarcerated Women and Girls. Thank you all again for being with us this evening. I did want to ground us quickly here in Massachusetts, since this is a BBA panel. Um, some of our audience will be aware that uh, earlier, I believe it was earlier this year, the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court released a, port, a, re a report on the Affinity Bar Town Hall meetings and a number of concerns um, concerning transgender and gender non-conforming attorneys and staff were raised. So things concerning misgendering and using of incorrect pronouns, uh, dead naming attorneys. And if you're not familiar with that term, dead naming is the use of a transgender or non-binary person's birth or former name without their consent. There were also reports of derogatory and joking comments made from judges, court staff, witnesses, and other lawyers when attorneys had shared what their pronouns uh, what their pronouns are and has to be referred in those ways. So that's just something to consider as we're sitting here in the state of Massachusetts. I also wanted to quickly uh, share that in 2015, the, the nation's largest transgender survey was conducted. Close to 26,000 transgender and non-binary folks were uh, surveyed and the survey results were broken out by state. They were also broken up by race. And here in Massachusetts, some of the stats were that um, 31% of those who sat in Massachusetts at the time of the report reported negative experiences with healthcare providers in the past year. 52% reported mistreatment by police who knew that they were transgender. 62% avoided using restrooms in public out of fear of being harassed. And those in K-12 settings, 73% who were out or perceived as transgender reported some form of mistreatment, such as verbal harassment, physical or sexual assault, or being disciplined more harshly than their peers. I also lastly just want to touch on the fact that 
This year marks the 50th anniversary of the Boston Pride March here in Boston. However, uh, if you've been following the news through the, um, I know I've seen some articles written in the Boston Globe, but also, you know, just from local organizers, uh, the organization is being forced to, to reckon with its long history of centering white and cisgender queer individuals. I believe that local trans activists here in Massachusetts and also locally in Boston were able to have the Boston mayor mayoral panel and candidates um, leave a panel that was um, originally organized by Boston Pride and they're having them do their own panel. And I believe as well, the current president of Boston Pride is currently stepping down. So that's just all to kind of put us in the right zone for talking about these issues here in Massachusetts. And so I kind of want to start the panel off with the topic that's kind of at the center and the heart of this um, discussion, which is intersectionality and living in the world as people of color, BIPOC, but also as transgender or gender non-conforming or non-binary. And so the question I have for all the panelists is, and I also just wanna say that oftentimes the statistics for trans people, I, I gave some earlier, but oftentimes they're worse and usually worse for uh, the BIPOC community. Um, given that, what place do or should transgender and non-binary BIPOC people have in the larger LGBT plus community? So perhaps I can start with you, Trey Andre, and I'm gonna uh, call on all of you at some point for this question, but if you could just talk about, you know, where should trans people of color be in the LGBT community? I mean, I think at the very center, at the very forefront, you know, in, in absolutely, in, in all places, absolutely. Um, and I think it's it's been not only about uh, folks in terms of race and gender, right? I'm thinking of, honestly, I can only think of like really like my experience, my, myself as an immigrant as well, and having to, um, having to uh, be basically someone who didn't have any status in this country for 20 plus years. So I think when thinking about intersectionality too, I think there's so many other aspects that really come into, and I'm thinking specifically um, within the legal systems, right? Um, but trans and non-binary and BIPOC folks should be at the very center, should be at the forefront. Um, uh, our leadership, you know, is, is I think something that people don't release value. Um, and, um, and that's something I think that, that needs to change. No, I think you made some really good points there. Um, and as something I've often heard is, is centering um, trans women of color as well, specifically in this movement. Um, Jennifer, I'm wondering if you would like to speak on this topic as well, just about where BIPOC, trans and non-binary people belong in the larger LGBTQ movement? Um, <clears throat> as already previously stated, our place is in the front. Um, oftentimes, this whole, our whole LGBTQ movement, trans movement, this has all become so um, Caucasian and corporate America. It's not even so much about us, and it's not even centering around Black or BIPOC people, period. And if you do, it's a tokenized situation. This is how I personally see it. Um, I can't speak for everyone in every location where I have been. It's 
a tokenized situation, but I do know that tomorrow is back to basics, it's Caucasian and the trans community, especially the black trans community is left out. And it leaves us struggling and fighting for a rightful place in the front. Absolutely. Can you talk a little bit more about, you know, you said being left behind or, or, you know, back to business as usual. What does that look like in the work that you do uh, for, your, for the community? Um, as you stated in my intro, I am a container and I'm an activist. I often make it clear that when it comes to LGBTQ locations, LGBTQ um, safe spaces, it's in all actuality is not their white LGBTQ places. You know, it leaves the black population of the LGBT community to struggle and hide. And even within that, it leaves the trans community still with no place to go because the lesbian situations or the gay situations make us feel out, feel outcasted, as well as sitting here in straight society, sisterhood, heterosexual society, they already don't want us here unless it's for a fetish purpose. So at the end of the day, we are stabbed in the back from each corner. But most of what we have is brought to the forefront because of a black trans woman, but yet you will sit here and put us at the back. And if you get one of us or two of us, you put in the stair just to make a quota. Thanks so much for that, Jennifer. Uh, Alex, did you wanna chime in on this topic as well about where we belong? Yeah, I mean, I think it's just, it's an interesting question the way it's framed and maybe I'm gonna be a little bit of a professor for a second and just sort of, you know, focus on that because I think the question kind of implies that like we have to fight for our place in the wider movement that we don't belong in the center of the movement but if you look at the history of the lgbtq movement you really can't separate the way that gender and sex is regulated in our society from race right from the beginning of america's founding people were categorized by sex for legal reasons to have or not have certain kinds of rights right and for example there was no interest in um performing intersex surgeries on black and brown people because the point of doing intersex surgeries in the 1950s was so that you could assign white people as male or female so that they could get married to each other and their property rights could be preserved. So if you start looking at the history of how we deal with identity documents in this country, how do we categorize people according to sex? Why do we categorize people according to race? Why do we even have birth certificates? Like all of these things are actually connected to a system of racialized and gender-based oppression, which assign people different tiers of rights on the basis of these defined and, and assigned characteristics. And so we can't really understand the history of homophobia and transphobia in this country without understanding how it's deeply tied to the way that we've treated black, brown, and indigenous people and Asian people in this country. And so it's not this like, you know, I think people frame it like, oh, like you should take pity on marginalized people and help them. But actually you can't understand the system and society that you live in yourself and the way you yourself experience gender and race without centering the experiences of transgender and non-binary BIPOC people within the LGBTQ plus movement. I appreciate the uh, the professor lens on that. Thank you so much, Alex. And just in, I'm looking at the time and JP, I'm not, I'm not forgetting about you, but what I wanna do, Alex, is perhaps transition into part two of our panel, which is just about some of the work that each of you have done. And Alex, I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about the clinic at Harvard Law and how your own identity has impacted that work. Yeah, I mean, sure. I'm happy to talk a little bit about some of the work that we do. So, you know, the clinic um, started a year and a half ago, and, you know, we uh, currently have two attorneys and 10 students per term, so 20 students per year um, that work with us on 
a caseload um, which focuses on national and local issues that dis that disproportionately affect marginalized people within the LGBTQ plus community. And so I'll give an example of two of the cases that we're working on, which I think illustrate some of the kinds of areas that we're trying to sort of put more focus on. So one case that we are doing right now with the Southern Poverty Law Center and the Transgender Legal Defense and Education Fund is about three young trans folk um, who are um, white and Latinx who were arrested during Black Lives Matter protests or Black Trans Lives Matter vigils in Miami um, over the course of 2020, booked into the local correctional county jail and just treated really horribly in the way that trans people are when they're put into carceral systems, right? So misgendered, harassed, unnecessarily strip searched, had their you know, privacy released to everybody, were asked if they were sex workers. Um, you know, one um, of our clients had her wig forcibly removed by security staff that claimed that there was a security problem with her keeping her wig. It was just really demeaning and accumulating behavior. We have another case that we're working on with the Center for Constitutional Rights, which is the, about the way that um, TGNC folk are being treated um, by the uh, homeless shelter of a major metropolitan city. And again, rampant amounts of sexual abuse, physical and verbal abuse, a culture of impunity that thinks, okay, these folks are at the bottom, so it doesn't matter what people do to them because nobody is gonna care, right? We had a client that we talked to who was chased out of a sh shelter by, with a baseball bat by a member of the shelter staff. So these are the kinds of things that people are dealing with on the street. And so, sure, it's great that we have marriage equality. It's great that we have federal non-discrimination protections and employment and other kinds of federal law. But the reality is that for the vast majority of folks like this that we're representing, those things are not going to particularly directly help them. And even if they were discriminated against in something like the retail industry or you know other kinds of non-protected, non-unionized, non-you know like lower wage work, most people can't afford to get a lawyer. They're not going to get recompense. And so the truth is that this is the reality that people live in in our country. And facial protections are one thing, but making systemic reform is harder on purpose for issues that disproportionately affect people of color. Congress literally passed laws like the Prison Litigation Reform Act that make it harder to sue prisons and make them liable for the constitutional violations that they visit upon people who are in the system every day. And so when we start to work on these issues that disproportionately affect marginalized people within our community, the problem is that the systems make it harder to have victories and they make it harder to be noticed for those kinds of things. And on top of that, um, there's less attention being paid to it by the media. And so, you know, there, all of these systemic issues affect the rewards that people are given for different kinds of advocacy work on different parts of our community. And people don't get the same level of representation and the same level of resources when you come from a more marginalized background. And that's what makes these systemic problems so hard to solve in our society. But that's also where this movement needs to go if we're going to be really working on the issues that really affect people's lives. I really appreciate you bringing up the talking about the struggles that people are having, you know, while while incarcerated. One of the when I was working at Lambda Legal, one of the major clients that I worked with was a black trans woman who, uh, unfortunately, through uh, she was in an unhealthy and unfortunately really abusive relationship, and it led to her um, unfortunately getting into something that you know she didn't initially start, but you know she was mistreated and she was abused inside of the of the system, I'm forgetting the exact state, I believe, I believe it was Michigan or so, but um, her her story was one that I carried with me throughout law school. But in terms of, uh, since we're on the topic of, you know, not just incarceration, but also like abuse and, and the things that trans people are constantly having to battle against, it's not just, you know, bathrooms and IDs for us, there's so many topics. J JP, I'm wondering if you would be willing to talk about, you know, the, the network Law Red and how, uh, you know, what services they provide, how they're serving the community, 
and your own identity that's led you to that work. Yeah, thank you. Absolutely. So um, my name is JP. I use any pronouns. And at the Network Lared, we've been working for almost 32 years to serve our communities. And we have been um, serving our communities um, through Hotline, which is 24-7, which is 800-832-1901. But as well as knowing that we, when we talk about centering, what does that mean? It doesn't mean um, putting things in, um, visible, which is important, right? But it also means like looking at all of the services that we provide and making an assessment, like are these services um, useful and helpful, but are they also trauma-informed and are they intersectional? And one thing that we've done at the network recently start providing um, support groups for um, Spanish-speaking folks in Spanish and also provide support groups for queer and trans BIPOC folks um, that is run and that is also not only the people running those support groups are BIPOC themselves, but also the person supervising them is as well. So also at the network, we are understanding that centering people mean hiring people, hiring the people that we're supposed or that we are aiming to serve. And also um, paying the people a living wage. Um, you know, many nonprofits have that, um, what is it, uh, those barriers in which like funding is uh, really scarce and that creates a lot of turnover. And one thing that we're right now understanding is that that turnover like hurts the people that we're serving. So uh, making sure that people are paid um, a good amount of money to make sure that you know, they are able to fulfill uh, their job duties, but also like step beyond a survival into thriving, right? Because we don't want to keep people in a survival mode. We want people to thrive. Um, so that's a little bit of what we do. I, I, I really like what you said before, which was about um, not just providing services to that community, but also having folks from that community serve the community and having some representation. Um, Trey Andre, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about, um, you know, your work as the first uh, BIPOC executive director of uh, MTPC and what that means to you and what that means to the community, because I think we're, we're kind of tapping on it, so we're dancing around it, but just talking about like uh, visibility and what that means and representation and what that means to uh, transgender and non-binary people of color. Absolutely. Um, so it, it's it's an interesting um, sort of pos position to be in, especially as the first person of color um, executive director. You know, when I first became involved in MTPC, one of the things that I was trying to do was actually bring more people of color to the organization. And that was back in 2007. Um, and one of the when I did become executive director, one of the uh, um, I think there were a few different reactions um, because a lot of people were um, upset that it was another trans masculine person, right? And I completely understand. I completely get that. Um, I think that you know that that you know that it's my job then becomes to amplify the voices that 
aren't typically amplified in our community, right? Amplifies everyone's voices. Um, and really to just let my sort of like let my work speak for itself because while I am proud to be a person of color, first person of color in the executive director position, I also see myself as a stepping stone for the next generation. And hopefully that person would be a trans woman of color. I think that um, that's the goal. And I think um, as we were talking about before, like centering trans women specifically, trans women of color specifically, when we're talking about representation, when we're talking about who needs to be um, at the front. Um, Jennifer, I wanted to make space for you if you wanted to speak about your experiences being incarcerated and any um, anything you'd want the, the legal community that's that's listening today to know about what it's been like for you and the work that you currently do um, through your organization. Um, okay, I never I often tell people in recent years that I didn't see this as being part of my life. Or the glitz and glam. No, I didn't see my life being in that fashion. But at the same token, I didn't foresee what was going to happen to me back in 2007 either. Um, uh, I've had interaction with cops before, but nothing never, nothing that never really triggered me until this particular day when I was arrested and um, I was taken out of a car, put into a police car. Still not thinking nothing of it. I'll just get to the precinct make my phone call, call my mother, and I'll be back home. No big deal. But uh, not my arresting officer, another officer happened to me, must be going through my pocketbook. And at the time, I didn't have a legal name change or a gender marker ID change. So he decided to um, take his flashlight, bring my ID to the window, look, look at me. And at this point in time, onlookers and stuff are looking and decided to take me out the vehicle and make a big announcement to the whole onlooking audience. Um, he specifically stated that I'm only talking, no offense to you women, but I'm only talking to you men. Gentlemen, listen up. This is not a woman. This is a man. He never said my dead name, but that right there was already too much. And then placed me back in a car after holding the flashlight over my head to make sure every male out here got a good look at me. And when you put me, and um, on the bench with two other females, when we got to the precinct, you put me then, this is my arresting officer. Now that same officer who just belittled the hell out of me outside, came in after and took me off the bench and went and put me in a holding cell where all men leaving me cuffed to the, to the railing where no other person in here, which is all males are cuffed. I never fully been through this process before, so I didn't know if I'm supposed to allow you to strip me right here. I guess they wanted to see if my body parts, which body parts that I have, but I'm still holding on because I, I never been that prepared. I'm prepared for by my parents to understand that because I'm black, I'm going to get things, doors closed in my face. I'm going to be treated different, so I got to work twice as hard. When I came out as gay, they informed me that now I have two strikes against me, whether I like it or not, and I have to work even harder. When I became Jennifer and acknowledged that I am the woman that I am, they let me know now you got three strikes, you need to be even 
harder. That they prepared me for the struggle, but they didn't prepare me for something like this. I don't think you ever could prepare, you know, no one, especially your child, for a situation like this. I didn't know what to do. I'm begging for my phone call. I don't get my phone call. Ultimately, to be put into prison, and um, never really having a voice in this situation. But I thank God that I had my family because Miss in New Jersey taking custom custody of me finally. Um, there for two weeks and four days, I was raped. 24 hours later, I was held down and beat. And then I was put in solitary confinement because I wouldn't tell who my attackers was. You already didn't protect me to begin with because you can give a shit about me. You want me to tell who my attackers were where my attackers clearly told on each other. What do you need me for? But you just victimized me even more. I'm broken at this point in time. I'm a shell of myself. My family couldn't um, see me for a while. My outgoing mail phone calls wasn't allowed for a while. I never even spoke about it. I just wanted to get through this and make it home. All I ask God is to give me something to help me get through this and let me make it home. And initially me coming home, I was so bottled up. I was so recluse. I didn't even want to be around my own family of fear of me being around other people especially my own people that I'm going to love and let my guard down and have police come and snatch me again. I was scared as hell because I still had three years of parole to finish, so I'm still state property. After that, I had um, did a body positive photo shoot. In that photo shoot, I was blindsided with some questions about my incarceration. It's no secret, it's public record. Um, but if you ever saw that video, you could see that I was physically visibly disturbed and I was shaken. And that was the first time that I publicly spoke about what I had endured. And um, people reached out to me through social media and um, I still was a shell, I didn't wanna talk. But ultimately um, I started trusting the process of my therapist. And then they let me know that uh, the longer I remain silent, the more they get away with it. They're always going to say, this doesn't happen. It's because I am the formerly incarcerated person. I am the villain in this situation. Yet and still, we want, they want you to look at um, police and police and CEOs and say that, oh, they're all not bad. Well, then why isn't the same about me, being Black or being trans or being formerly incarcerated? I happen to be in a situation, I happen to be in a car with someone who did some shit, but you didn't care about that. <laughs> you just got another black body and you got a trans body. You get a twofer when it came to me. And I had realized that there were more people that were suffering from what I had endured. Maybe the mental health and the depression, maybe the rape and the incarceration. And then I realized that I was just that privilege to come home to a home and to a family to still fight for me. And I realized that my counterparts don't have that, especially when they look like me. Who is here to fight for them? Yeah, some people are a little extra, but shit, most of us are. <laughs> and they ain't got nothing to do with your race, your gender, your identity, and none of the above. You have a right to be you. And if somebody wants to call that extra, so be it. Love your extraness, love your you, but no one deserves to take your voice and take your heart from you. And I knew that it was my duty to go ahead and do whatever I 
could do with the platform that I had as an entertainer to one, bring awareness. So every show that I do, before you pay me, I'm going to get on your stage and acknowledge that we're sitting here having cocktails, tipping, tipping me and my cast, but understand something. There are so many people that look like me, that are me, that's inside. We're black. No judge, no cops, no lawyers is going to sit here and go find out and research to find out that we were victim of circumstances. What led us up to this moment? The, 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 the trans woman or the gay man who's sitting over here, who's sex working. So there's sex work and there's survival sex work. That person shouldn't be imprisoned. That person shouldn't have to go on a registry. But hey, nobody cares. That's just a slut. That's just a whore. You already sit here. I have a BA in mathematics, but most people don't know that. Or you will sit here and look at me from public record. Oh, you naturally assume that I'm a sex worker. And that you know I'm a convict, so they say. And I, I can't change your mind. All I can let you know is that I'm here. I know now that I matter. And I know now I would never let no one take my voice from me. And I'm going to make sure I fight like hell. I don't know how much longer I'm going to be on this earth, but I'm going to enjoy my time while I'm here. And I'm going to fight for those who cannot fight for themselves. Thank you, Jennifer, so, so much for sharing all of that with us. I think the resiliency of our community is one of the strengths and you've absolutely shown that um, with the work you're doing with the community, with the organization. Um, one of the, the final questions that I wanted to discuss with the group as a whole was this discussion around pride. I think we were just talking right before the panel started about how pride, uh, it's almost the end of pride month and I think Wednesday is the last day. And I think it brings a lot of mixed emotions for a lot of our community. There are folks who are just really genuinely excited about pride. There are folks who say, well, uh, you know, there, it's a time to be out and proud. There are folks saying that there are actual things we want to celebrate. And then there are folks who are saying, like, we've really moved away from the roots of what pride was, which was a riot, which was fighting back against police brutality. Um, for those who are not familiar, the Stonewall riots, uh, we're not the first riots that uh, queer individuals were were a part of, but it was the one that got the most attention because uh, there actually was fighting back against the police. It happened in you know the the heart of uh, you know the village in New York City, and it lasted uh, a day or so. And so you know there have been marches every year since then. We were talking earlier about Boston Pride and how that's going on, and I also want to flag that Pride started because Black and trans women were the ones who chose to stand up and they were the ones who fought back. So generally, I wanna ask the panel, what does pride mean today? Does it mean the same thing? Um, especially for BIPOC trans people, uh, especially in a day and age when we're talking about before about pride being commercialized and you, know, you can find rainbow flags and rainbow shirts at you know, tons of stores and you know, corporations put the rainbow you know, logos up. What is pride today? And what does it mean to you? And perhaps um, we can start with you, JP. Totally, thank you. Pride to me, pride to me is like my yearly reminder that there is still so much work to be done. I think that um, 
I am. Remi- I feel like I am reminded because of my line of work. I am reminded every day that there is so much work to be done. But to me, pride in some ways makes me really upset. Um, it makes me angry because it feels like this feels like the only time in which people care that we exist, that we as LGBTQ people exist. And then, like, um, to me, to me, it 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 makes me feel unimportant being reduced to pride so to me like yes i i feel happy to like celebrate with my peers and i feel excited to perform um but i in in other ways to me pride is um is is a reminder of how much how much we need to do and when when we mean like we need to center folks is like if if this, if today is your first day hearing testimony from someone like Jennifer, if today is your very first day of listening to testimony like that, then you haven't been centering Black trans individuals, like Black trans women. You know, if today is the first day that you hear things like this. So I want to invite you at the very end of Pride, you know, it, it Pride Month is what, two days left and then we're in July, right? We don't want July to be wrath month because you didn't hear us during pride. You know, we want this to be every single month of every single year until the inequalities that still exist are no longer present. So to me, pride is a reminder to keep fighting. That was great. I'm wondering if I could, uh, Alex, if you have any thoughts about, you know, what pride is now and where BIPOC, trans, non-binary folks fit in, (laughs) in the meaning of that. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Um, I don't remember where this comes from, but recently I heard a um, trans BIPOC DJ say, you know, um, I think they were quoting something else, but they said, you know, um, popular culture is just expired black culture. And I feel like a lot of like, all of the subversive energy of pride comes from the marginalized folks within our community, right? It comes from the drag queens and the drag kings and the folks who work on the street and the folks who are having to live underground. And we then take the culture that they made and we market it and we sell it and we give it to corporations that market it and sell it back to us. And that is, maybe just a depressing indictment of American capitalism (laughs) that you have something which started out as this revolt and this rebellion. And now you have people asking, Oh, does kink belong at pride when kink started pride. Right. And so I think, um, we have to be vigilant about the way that our culture gets assimilated, um, and appropriated for other people to feel like they can, feel subversive and excited and thrilled, right? But at the expense of sort of enjoying and profiting off of other people's suffering and the things that people created because they created spaces for themselves. And so I think that in Pride Month, we should be really focused on the history of pride and where does pride come from and where did we get this collective cultural power to make the world different? It had to come from people who had to see the world differently because they couldn't see the world that wasn't made for them, they couldn't fit into that world. So they had to create something different. And that is, I think, the beauty and the power and the libertarian vision that is at the heart of pride that has given it the power that it has. But we are not doing that justice 
if we don't look at that history and we don't recognize that that's really where the power of pride comes from. So when I think about pride, that's what I think about. I think about ancestors in this community that have sacrificed so much so that we can live freely now. Um, and many of us still are not living freely, as Jennifer said, but more of us can live freely now than could live freely 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years. And that keeps happening because people are doing the work. And so supporting that work and remembering that history, I think are the things that are most important to me. Thanks, Alex. Treyandre, did you have some thoughts about what pride means to you and does it have a new meaning today? Yeah, I, I mean, for, actually, first of all, before I answer that question, I just wanted to say to Jennifer, thank you for sharing your, um, not, not, not only your experience, but your, your vulnerability, right? Um, because it's it, like, we shouldn't have to be resilient, right? Shouldn't have to be strong or, or anything. And you shouldn't have to have experienced this. And I, I really do thank you for, for, for sharing. Um, love you so much. Um, for me, pride is, again, as, as just to continue to jump off of what JP has been saying and Alex is saying, it, it, it is still a reminder of where, for me, where we come from, right? We come from a, 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 a place of pain, come from a, a, a place of, of wanting something more for ourselves. And I'm reminded because today is the first day of the Stonewall riots. And that lasted for what, a whole week, right? Um, and I keep hearing Sylvia Rivera's voice in my head, screaming at the crowd, right? Like, um, uh, I can't remember what she's saying. It's some, I think she's saying like, aren't, aren't you listening to me? You know, I've been here fighting for your rights and you are gonna stand here and spit on me. And that is still happening today, 50 years later, right? Still happening. And so uh, it's commercialized. Right, they put a pretty bow on it. They put a pretty rainbow on it, um, but it's still, uh, um, to me, it's it's. I have to remember where we came from. Absolutely, because it's almost like without the past, there is no future, and Absolutely. I envision a better future. Thank you for that. Jennifer, I would love for, to hear from you and have you be the last beautiful voice that we hear for uh, talking about pride. And then I know we have some questions from the audience and I, I wanna be conscious of time as well. So we've got 12 minutes, but I would love to end with uh, what your thoughts are. Okay, um, I'll be honest in like 95, I'm an 18 year old, I'm seeing my first pride. Of course, I wanted to get out here. This is a whole new world for me. But as the time went on, it became not pride-ish. I watched police um, take over and it became a little brutal to me in my opinion. Um, it became everything but pride. So I shied away. And um, I sort of, I don't agree with hurt people hurt people, but I, 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 I see it. So many hurt people. And at this moment in time, I'm at Pride. And at this nighttime, Christopher Street is basically BIPOC LGBT community. And the cops are just on them. And it's not to protecting each other. It's 
throw you to the bus so I can get away type situations instead of banding together like is what I saw when I first came out. So it made me shy away. Then when I, the, while I was away and I don't even have an option to do a pride and I don't have a flag for anything, everything that's ever melted me was taken from me or destroyed and made it into my possession. I realized that after I became Jennifer, I only attended pride, pride to work get my booking fee, make my tips, go. I became no better than them. <laughs> and so with having no five for like six years, when you come home, I realized that not only did I only attend it at this point in time, it's only make money, but I was more concerned with, because I'm her now, with being stealth. I didn't want people to be seeing me, putting me on blast. <laughs> to make this guy not like me or this girl who saw me around this guy sit here, call him a fag and then make him come hurt me. Excuse my, excuse my language. I'm just using the terminologies that's literally used in everyday life. And so it just put me in a tailspin. But when I came home, I will admit, I realized that it was important for me to go ahead and take these opportunities to get on the float and um, just ride it for a half an hour to start off and then get out here and walk and let my little brown babies sit here and see that it is okay to be you. You have it better than I did. People before me, I had it better than people before me. And we're going to keep making it better for the next group and the next group. So I have to get out here and see you. I did not attend NYC Pride this year, but I did do a smaller Pride a smaller pride event that was for young um, pride LGBT teens who weren't who weren't ready to go into the big fifty thousand people. <laughs> so I did attend the thing for them, and to me that was heartfelt because that was a moment of sitting here watching some high schoolers know who they are, and to me that is a prideful moment. I'm watching these little young people get their education. They're not running, they're not hiding. They're willing to take whatever battle comes their way. And they are very well-spoken and very sure of who, who they are. Instead, I had to sit here and be something that I wasn't. I wasn't prideful. I don't think I actually got my pridefulness until coming home from prison, but that's being beaten down and rebuilding myself and to watch these amazing young people. Even the parts that I did do for NYC that was, the best, that was recorded and played through the, through the national airing, I'm still blessed to have been a part of it, but it's still yet not what it used to be. I only can imagine what it felt like in a time before I was born. And I'm probably only posting up here. <laughs> I only can imagine. And I hope that it would get to a day before I'm gone where I can get out here and it's going to be trans-centered, BIPOC-centered. No corporate America take no corporate America taking it over. I will say this about 2019, I seen uh, I don't know if it was a shaving cream commercial or it was a razor commercial. It was a commercial. All I all I seen was a young man being taught by his dad during Pride Month, being taught by his dad how to shave. Oh. Then when I found out that the young man was a trans man, and that was acceptance of his dad as my son, let me teach you how to properly shave. Oh, that meant the world to me. No, I'm not a trans man. 
<laughs> that's still my trans sibling. And that made me in awe. But once the public found out that this is not a father teaching his, um, that it's his father teaching his trans son, they went up and all. And you pulled it during Pride Month. Goodness gracious. So I just be like, oh, y'all only want us for the money. Some of us are so blinded and so jaded as I once was. Instead of making it a moment of unity, this is a moment that we should be fighting for our place. It's no different from Black History Month, which I do greatly appreciate. I do appreciate Pride Month. But look here, I'm Black from two blocks away from up close, 365. I'm gonna be black and trans, 365. I'm gonna get on the plane, get on the bus, go into the store, never go back to prison, but walk into the courthouse to go rescue somebody, go pick somebody up from a jail. I'm gonna be black, I'm gonna be trans, I'm gonna be proud of myself. I'm 45 now, and now I finally know what my pride is, who I am, and no one can never take that away from me ever again. I, I don't know how to follow up up after that. Thank you, Jennifer. Um, this was great. I thank you all the panelists. I do have a, there's a question here that I definitely want to address. There were a few questions that were submitted, but um, this one says, what advice do you have for young advocates who following the gist of Alex's earlier comment are losing hope in legislative and legal paths for queer slash trans liberation? I don't know if anyone, and I don't know if Alex, maybe you want to address this, but I don't know if anyone here specifically wants to provide any advice for young advocates who are perhaps not feeling that the courts are, uh, I guess, the the pathway, the legal pathway towards towards liberation. Yeah, um, I'm happy to talk about that. It's something that um, comes up a lot when I teach my course on gender identity and sexual orientation in the law. Um, and I think that it's really interesting to me because, you know, I agree with everything everybody said on this panel today about all the ways that we need to continue to make sure that we are centering the most marginalized people in our community in our work. And at the same time, I also think it's true that if you look at every single civil rights movement in this country over the last 50 years, the LGBTQ plus movement has made great strides in our legal status and in the kinds of protections that folks have, right? And those protections are real and concrete and the advancements in the way that Americans think about whether or not this community should have rights are real and concrete. And I'm living a kind of life that I could not have lived 50 years ago or even 10 years ago. And all of those things are true at the same time. And they're true because this community has fought every step of the way for everything that it's gained and it's used every tool at its disposal. And it hasn't said, we're not gonna use that tool. It said, if that's what it takes, we're gonna do this right now and we'll do something else later. And so I think that one thing that I try to teach in my class is that you can kind of like put your horizon so high that you're like, well, I can't achieve everything. I'm, I can't revolutionize society. So I might as well just go home or go work for a corporate law firm. In a way, it's almost like, and, and if you need to do that or you want to do that or you're interested in doing it, that's fine. But I think telling yourself that because you can't revolutionize society, it's no point even trying to help it a little bit is just something that you can tell yourself so you can feel better about not doing what you can. And so I think that there are plenty of ways that young activists can get involved in whichever way suits your own skill set. 
maybe you like litigation. Maybe you like legislative work. Maybe you like working in coalitions. Maybe you like politics. Maybe you like working at agencies. There's so many different ways that suit different personalities and skill sets to contribute. And every single person who is going to law school or is a lawyer has so much power compared to people who don't have access to the system to help other folks who don't know how to navigate these systems. So I think there's absolutely a lot people can do. And it's really important to hold on to the fact that we've made a lot of positive progress and we're continuing to make that positive progress. And I believe the reason that we are gonna continue to make that progress is because fundamentally our opponents don't have reality on their side. They have stereotypes and fear mongering and ignorance, but they don't have lived experience. And the lived experience is that this community doesn't pose this gargantuan threat to the social order. This community just wants to live and thrive. And it living and thriving creates space for equality and acceptance and tolerance of all kinds of people in our society. And there's nothing bad about that. And so I'm not afraid of for the future. And I'm not afraid to continue to fight for change because I believe that we are right in what we're asking for. And we deserve to live in equality and dignity with everybody else. And so I just think don't lose hope recognize that every person can only do a little bit, but that little bit means a lot over time when you add it all up. I didn't know if any, thank you for that, Alex. I don't know if anyone else wanted to, to comment about that, but one of the last questions here, I think this is a really good one, is, uh, sorry, my mouse is acting up. Uh, how can cis white gay men center trans BIPOCs in their own queerness? I, and I'm assuming this person maybe in their in their lived experience or in their work, but how can cis white gay men center trans people of color, non-binary people of color? How much time you got? In what context? <laughs> like, like <laughs> we have one minute left. <laughs> No, I mean, like that's like, like that's my serious reaction. Seriously, that's my initial reaction. But um, I, I I don't have any thoughts because it, that's just such a big question. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's it's you know who are the do you know trans do you know trans people of color right do you know BIPOC trans people I think it's maybe to start with the people that you know, um, really. And yeah. them how to show up, you know, how, how would you like me to show up for you? JP, handing it off to you. Yeah, go through your Facebook, your Instagram, and if all of your photos do not have any trans people, do not have any trans black people, do not have any trans people of color, then you need to do some lifestyle changes. Like this is not, the centering black trans experience is not during your 40 hours of working, you're done. If you aren't surrounding yourself with the people that you are serving, then you are not doing a good job, period. Alex? Um, so I just wanted to add pay people. That's actually a really big part of it. Pay people to be on panels. And if you are somebody who takes speaking engagements, if you're taking them for free, why are they gonna pay somebody else if you're gonna do it for free? So other people aren't going to be able to get paid if you don't get paid. So think about the economy of free labor that the legal profession relies on and how exclusive that is and how much it assumes that people have a regular income, which a lot of people in this community do not have. Hire people, actually hire people for jobs. Think about your pipeline. Think about giving opportunities to people from marginalized communities. Think about the fact that folks from those communities often won't have the same 
traditional credentials, but have just as much ability, but they need more training. So if you genuinely care, you have to think about your pipeline and building your pipeline. Like through the National Trans Bar Association, which I co-founded and now Ryan is a board member of, we've seen this entire young generation of trans lawyers grow up and get opportunities. And those opportunities put them in the pipeline because there's this desperate need for more representation. So people getting just the work experience and breaks that they need, people just need one good break. A lot of these folks had a lot of bad breaks in their life, and that's why they can't be in the same privileged position or have the same resume on paper, but they have all the potential in the world and they have this great and compelling life experience that's going to let them see the work in a different kind of way. So think about your scholarship and mentorship programs. If you're at a law firm, think about your diversity programs for summer hires. Think about where you're advertising, who are you trying to recruit? So hiring, promotion, retention, salary, money, like all of those things are actually really critical in the long run if you really want to empower people within this community to have more agency. I would say, I would add everything that everyone else just said, but I would add, use your privilege. Cause I hope that you do know that you do have a privilege that us up here will never have. Use your privilege to be that driving force to get said people, these trans people, us, not necessarily me, get us to that finish line. It doesn't mean that we can't get there on our own, but a lot of doors are gonna close in our faces off, off the rip and off GP. And you have that privilege, you have that key. You have the skeleton key by birth. So use that to put that good foot forth for a good cause, the rightful heirs, that's my opinion. <laughs> Give them the key to the throne. Escort them, be that escort to get them safely to their thrones. Thank you, all of you. I want to thank all of our panelists for being honest, for being vulnerable with all of us, and for having this conversation. Thank you to the BBA, MLAC the SJC Standing Committee for Lawyer Wellbeing, the Access to Justice Commission, and all the other co-sponsors for hosting this series. We also encourage you to attend a webinar this Wednesday at 2 p.m. being hosted by Black and Pink, Massachusetts, an organization working to address the disproportionate impact of the criminal, just, the criminal system uh, on LGBTQ and HIV positive people titled No Pride in Prisons, the Criminalization of LGBTQ Plus People. And opening remarks to this event will be given by the state Senator Julian Cry and state representative Jack Lewis. And I just, again, thank you so much, uh, Jennifer, Treandre, JP, Alex. This was a phenomenal panel. Uh, I appreciate your time and your dedication to the community. And thank you everyone who came. Have a good evening. <laughs>